Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are in the world right now. Our guest today is Dr. Kim J. Penthenby. Dr. Penthenby's research includes afterlife, exploring human consciousness and mindfulness. Kim is a certified clinical psychologist at the Chester F. Carlson, professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia's School of Medicine. This is her story and this is her passion. Dr. Kim J. Penthenby, welcome to Passion Harvest. I am so honoured and so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I can't wait to dive into our conversation today. You have, you know, such a wealth of knowledge about so many different subjects, but I'd like to start with death anxiety and your research and your knowledge on this subject. Well, thank you. Yes. So you're, um, you're jumping right into one of the areas that I'm very interested in. I am a clinical psychologist and um, some of the patient work that I do, care that I do for patients is in the cancer center. We have a large cancer center at the hospital where I work. And um, I was um, really uh, made aware of this fear of death and dying and the tremendous impact it has, not just on the individual patient, but also on the entire family and the whole medical system really and really wanted to dive into it and see what we could do about that. Um, So that's where some of my interest came from in really wanting to understand how we can uh, help people sort of um, move through this phase of their life. And um, that sort of led me into, you know, exploration of what strategies are already there and have been researched and, and then also led me down a path looking at, at, you know, other alternatives that may not be in the mainstream literature in uh, psychology or in the cancer world. And, and we uh, generally we have such a fear of death or many, many people do have such a fear of death. Why is this in your opinion? Well, there's been a lot of research about this, you know, philosophers, uh, religious studies, people, psychologists, and really we think of this as a a fundamental existential problem um, that we have because as humans, we have this thing called consciousness, this ability to reflect on our own thinking and, um, and to, you know, measure time and look around us and understand and comprehend what's happening. So we are conscious in this world and thinking about our thoughts. And this allows us to be aware of the fact that we will die. And this is uh, very alarming. You know, we think about the creatures around us, they all also will die. 
However, the assumption is they don't have this ability to reflect upon that fact. So your, your pet dog or cat is not sitting around contemplating uh, when they might die and, and how horrible that will be. So this is why they, the researchers think we, we have this. And um, there are basically two ways in, in the terror management uh, theory. So this is terror management. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's, yeah. There's a, an approach that says um, we can handle this sort of existential crisis, this understanding that we will die, and that seems incomprehensible to us in two ways. One is we just ignore it. Um, denial. That's what that's called. And that's not very effective because it leads to a lot of other problems. The other is that we incorporate it in a way that, um, that we, that makes sense to us. So this has traditionally been um, the spirituality, the religions that we believe in, where we've, we've, we've sort of mix that into our belief system. So we have an understanding of what it means to die and, and we build it into our belief system. And that often can be very helpful in alleviating fear of death and dying. And the other, yeah. sorry, please go on. No, 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 no. Well, well the, <laughs> other, the other interesting thing is, as I said, that we are now, we're discovering um, things that have been in existence for a long time. We're now just sort of pulling them out into the scientific light of day, I guess, is and studying them is that there are certain things that also can reduce the fear of death and dying, like having a near-death experience, having an out-of-body experience, and in, 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 in many cases, having um, psychedelic trips where you sort of perceive this existence beyond the death of your body, um, during meditation, different kinds of meditative experiences, people can begin to let go of this fear of death and dying. So it's very interesting that we've got multiple venues to achieve that goal. Thank you for sharing that. And I know, know you detailed it, but for someone that's listening that hasn't had any of those experiences and are afraid of death and, and, and dying, what would be your advice to them? Well, I think a lot of it depends on how extreme that fear is. Many of us have this. We, we would prefer not to think about our death or more accurately, most of us are um, worried when we think about dying about the pain or, or the, um, the sort of de declining of our body. That's what we really don't care for. Um, However, if you, if you are someone who is really struggling with a fear of death, um, there are psychological uh, strategies to, to help you, as I said. So um, if you feel like it is significant enough that it's really problematic, um, I think going to a counselor or a therapist or, or maybe first your physician and, and asking them you know, for help, there are therapeutic approaches. And we've found in our research, this is often the most common that is, you know, uh, tried at first. And, and often the work there is a terror management approach. It's saying, well, we need to approach it. We need to talk about it instead of avoiding it or denying it and look at your belief system. How will you accommodate this? 
What do you think will happen when you die? And beginning to sort of flush that out. And often that means bringing in their religious beliefs or, or creating them if they've not had that foundation. Um, we are working um, on developing other strategies like virtual out-of-body experiences that might help um, achieve that same goal of recognizing that maybe I exist even outside of my body and what would that mean? So it's really about trying strategies to help the person accommodate this process of thinking about their personality, their consciousness, their soul, whatever you wanna call it, existing after the death of their body. And often once they've sort of opened up that possibility, their, their fear is, is significantly reduced. And you can, you can sort of understand why. I mean, you can use those techniques probably for any sort of fears. Um, they could be applied to, you spoke about altered states of consciousness, and I know you've done an incredible amount of research on this. I'd love you to share some of your research and knowledge with the audience. Yes. So when I say altered states of consciousness, I mean, that's, um, that sounds really sort of out there and, uh, you know, all, uh, I'm, I'm not sure everyone uses that term the same way. So mm -hmm. for much of my research, what I'm looking at is altering a state of consciousness through a meditative or contemplative practice. So that sort of helps define it a little bit more for the research I've done thus far. And it's really looking at um, helping people achieve this altered state of consciousness through a meditative practice. So um, the goal is to reach the state where what we, what we see is the, the brain really is beginning to sort of shut down different activities not in a negative way, like um, going into a coma or anything, but really settling down, calming down brain activity. And, and you can get there in multiple ways. Um, one is, you know, a meditative practice that's looking at more focused attention. So a breath meditation where you focus just on breathing or meditation where you might focus on a, a candle, but you're, you're sort of narrowing your attention. And we see that that reduces things like the beta waves um, in, in, in your brain. So the activity levels, if you were looking at them on something like a functional MRI would, would be diminishing and, and people can achieve it in, in multiple ways. And what we notice about that state of being is that um, we see changes when we ask people about certain things. So before and after, once they gain this ability through practice, um, there's just a multitude of things that, that seem to change. They become um, more attentive so they can focus better. They seem to have less anxiety, um, be more creative even, more compassionate. So Kim, one of your particular topics of interest and research is after-death communication. I'd love to discuss that with you and I'm going to pass it over to you however you'd like to share it with the audience. Yes, um, this is a really interesting topic um, because I think it is one of the experiences that we have as humans that is um, not spoken about very often, at least not voluntarily. Mm -hmm. 
And yet what I have discovered over my course of time in working as a psychologist is um, that if you are open to it um, and inquire about it, or even just have an attitude of openness with the patients you're working with, um, they will disclose these to you. And I have been really surprised by how many people have indicated to me that they uh, have perceived a spontaneous after-death communication. And what I mean by that is literally it's uh, spontaneous. It's uh, communication from someone who has passed on that was unsolicited. So this is not going through a medium or, or uh, you know, trying to channel this. This is sort of like just out of the blue, this occurs. And um, it's a, a real sense of someone being there and it can be manifested as someone, um, someone just sensing the presence or the aroma um, or actually feeling the touch or hearing the voice. So it, it can be manifested in multiple ways. It's a sense though, that, that is real to the individual experiencing it, the living individual and meaningful and um, not, not hallucinated. And so um, in the research, um, you will see that much of the research has, has explicitly looked at that, that these are, are people who do not have mental illness. They're not delusional. Um, and that is a, an important caveat because we want to make that clear. Um, so in my clinical work and experiencing this, it um, became very interesting to me because what I noticed is that for many of these people, it really, it really improved how they felt. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a woman I was treating, um, she had already uh, been suffering from depression. She had cancer as well. And then her mother passed away and she had had a very complicated relationship with her mother. She in fact, didn't know her mother was ill until, until her mother called her from another country and um, said that she was in the hospital. And so the patient went to see her. She died almost immediately. And um, the patient was very, very upset by this because they had not had a good relationship. She had um, felt really cheated towards the end of her mother's life. And when she returned and we began seeing each other again, she met criteria for complicated bereavement, which is that the, the bereavement, the, the grief was so extreme that it was interfering with her functioning. And um, just to get her to a place where she could even function or, or, or stop crying and, and, and just be present, um, I worked with her to teach her a, a meditation, just a sort of a, a, an attention-focused meditation where she could just be present um, and really focus on her breath and then eventually focus on just different um, sensations. And what she reported to me several weeks into this work was that she had an experience with her mother coming back, stroking her cheek and telling her that she was okay. It was all okay. And, and when this patient shared this with me, she just started crying and tears were running down her face and it was so powerful. And she said, now I can let her go. Now I, I, 
I can move on. And, and her grief was, was significantly improved. Um, we went on to continue working with her um, and her grief to this day has, has, has been alleviated. She still is struggling with other things that she has her health issues. And yet she's in a much better place psychologically. And, and she really, she really ascribed it to this, this visit from her mother that was incredibly real to her. And, and, um, you know, I remember I was, I was not sure what is this? Um, so that's when I started doing the research and, and was lucky enough to get connected with people around the globe. Um, Evelyn Elsevier in, um, over in, in Europe and, and become part of a larger study um, where we really looked at this in a more systematic way. It's so interesting. And so loved ones have transitioned and they've returned to the people that are still in the physical form and in some way appeared or given them a message, always a positive message. Well, in this is the trick of it, you know, um, in the research we did. So we uh, solicited from thousands of people around, you know, the globe, um, their stories of after-death communications, spontaneous after-death communications. And the majority of them are positive. Now, not all of them, but there's probably a self-selection there. Um, if you think about it, um, if I had a after-death communication that was terribly frightening or um, didn't go well, I'm, I might not think to sign up for the study and, and share it with other people. Yes. Um, in my experience, the majority of them are reported to be more positive. And in the work that we did, again, with that caveat, you know, that these are people who are volunteering to share their story, the overwhelming majority were positive. Um, you, you may not have done this research, but those people that experience visitations or communications with the other side, were they doing anything particular at the time or were most of them? I don't know, only because people say, I might say, I want that, you know, were they meditating? Were they cleaning the kitchen? Yeah. Was there a particular task that they were doing at the time? Right. So we believe that, um, that some sort of, again, altering this state of consciousness may help um, access this. So um, many of the patients I work with, this is achieved when they're um, meditating um, or have been able to meditate. For some people, it's during um, sort of a crisis. Um, so, you know, the, the patient I described, she also had grief and in the death and, and, and sort of this, this real psychological crisis um, and was meditating. Um, for others, you know, I, I have heard reports. It's, I'm just, you know, in my bed at night, um, there is an interesting component where it can be, um, there seems to be some connection with sort of maybe that altered state of consciousness when you're falling asleep or just waking up. So if you think about it, you know, the, my hunch is it's when our, our mind, our brains may be offline a little bit or subdued, like we were talking about with meditation, where somehow we can access this. Um, or maybe in some sort of crisis where we're just sort of in this emergency state where uh, we access it. So we've got a lot to learn about that, but I think it's, um, 
it's very, very interesting um, to think about these communications and, and what, what they um, may mean. Um, we certainly know that they seem to have a positive effect for people um, and are perceived as a, as a good thing in their life. Often, you know, a, a positive thing that helps them keep going um, and sometimes even life-saving. Um, I just wanted to briefly touch on grief. We all, unfortunately, will experience at some point in our life, we will lose loved ones. What is your advice to those people that are grieving? Oh, gosh. Um, I think grief that is associated with the death of a loved one is... Um, is very, very challenging because it is, as you say, an experience that we will all have. Um, and finding ways to get through that is um, very much like a meditative um, sort of approach. It, it's different for every person. I mean, grief is very individualized. And I hesitate to say, you know, here's what you do to get through grief because it is so different for different people and, and, and even the same person with, with different losses. Mm. Um, I think trying to create some sense of meaning, um, not too dissimilar to approaching a fear of death and dying. Remember the fear of death and dying is not just something we possess for our own death. We often fear that for the people that we love. And so we can think about how to accommodate the death of our loved one in a similar way. How can we fold that into our belief system? For me personally, um, I am very scientific and, and really have approached this in a way where I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it using the scientific method. And from the research that I've gathered, it, it does seem that there are indications that, that some remnant of us, our consciousness, our soul, what, whatever you choose to call it, seems to exist after the death of our body. And that helps me with grief. I just lost my father in October, the end of October. And he and I spent a lot of time together at the end of his life. He was 83. I think he had a good death because he and I spoke about what was to come. And um, I shared with him my thoughts uh, about him existing perhaps after the death of his, his frail older body that was giving out on him. And I will tell you something sort of funny and charming. The last time I saw him before he died, I was just leaving quickly to go to the restroom or something. And I said, okay, dad, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'll be back. And he said, so will I. Aww. And, and of course I didn't see him uh, alive again. Um, and yet I know that that was, um, that was comforting for me with, with my grief. Of course I miss him. Um, I had spent so much time with him at the end, taking him to doctors and spending time with him and talking about the big questions because that's one thing I've discovered when you have someone who is um, heading towards death, 
I often encourage the family, the loved ones, the partners, the spouses, the friends, go ahead and talk about the big questions. You know, do it now while you can. Um, and that often helps as well. Really pull all that out. Ask the questions you wanted to know. And, you know, I asked him, why did you name me Jennifer Kim? And yet you all just called me Kim. Why give me that name if you're never going to use it, you know? Um, but seriously, we also talked about bigger issues, things that had happened in his life he couldn't explain and how he made sense of it. So back to your question of grief, I think finding a way to make meaning of the person's life and their death and um, incorporating that into, into your belief system, if that's um, sort of an organized religion, many organized religions have um, sort of um, laid out what, what will happen. Um, if you don't have that, beginning to think about, well, what makes sense to you um, in your life, in your experience, and incorporating the death that way, it really does help the grief. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you've done so much research. I will leave a link below in the show notes for people if they would like to view some of your research and documentation on so many subjects. Dr. Kim Pentheby, it's been such a delight. I've asked all the questions. Is there something I haven't asked you that you would like to share with the audience? I think this... Um... This pandemic has been really challenging for people. And I would just say to everyone, if you're still here, if you're functioning and um, surviving, um, congratulations, because this has not been an easy couple of years. And um, I think the work I'm doing, the work that many of us are doing in this arena is so important because um, you think about the loss that we've all experienced over the past years, personal loss, many people losing loved ones to, to COVID or versions of it, many people frightened and scared. And I think these contemplative practices have so much to offer um, in the way of helping people um, approach these, these really hard um, aspects of life, um, the idea of, of death and dying, the idea of persevering, even in very challenging times. And so I would just encourage people um, to take it seriously, to look into it, to think about what would work for them um, to achieve this state of mind, this altered state of mind, if you want to call it, um, where they can, they can achieve some of these goals of feeling some self-compassion, feeling compassion for others, connecting to the earth again. And um, I just wonder what, what it might look like for us um, on this earth as humans, if more of us could achieve that, if we could achieve this state of consciousness where we um, are feeling compassion and connection with others, and feeling less anxiety, able to approach things and solve problems and understand death is not the end. I think, I think that's the key to our future. So I, I would encourage people to find their way there, whatever that might look like. 
What a beautiful and inspiring way to end the show. <laughs> Kim, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest and the work you're doing is amazing. So I want to thank you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye-bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.